0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Ardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industries carries it. Check them out at NAGIndustries.com I would also like to thank Ardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 Scalable Plate Carrier System, Segeen Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out AardvarkTactical.com.
1: Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast.
2: For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. copes Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com. Enter discount code Cato at checkout and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope, Stackle, and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us.
0: In this episode of the Cato podcast, we return to Sound Doctrine. And we're going to talk about Chapter 3. We put this off because uh, we were all busy for a little while, but we want to keep these coming steady. Uh, we think they're important. I think most of us agree if you're going to read one book about how to manage or learn about critical incidents, it would probably be sound doctrine. So uh, at least, at least get yourself started on this journey. Sound doctrine, chapter three, is the nature of commanding. A rational man acting in the real world may be defined as one who decides where he will strike a balance between what he desires and what can be done. Walter Lippmann. So the nature of commanding. So what is command? The definition of command. So remember, Sound doctrine is a primer for field command where Sid distilled years of military training and doctrine and applied that science to tactics for law enforcement. So he's translating into sound doctrine and field command. So when we talk about command, while in law enforcement and the military, it means the same, yet there are also differences. So when we go to command and we read from the good book, the definition of command. The power one holds because of their position in an organization. Command involves delegated authority. That is authority that a person possesses by virtue of their position within an organization. So that's the very formal, strict definition of command. I don't know that law enforcement uses that strict a definition when we refer to people in command or people who are commanders.
1: No, so Marcus, you bring up a good point. And I think just to cover a, a couple of things. Number one, there's a general lack of awareness that there's a, a system of knowledge that covers general truths for, and, and Sid talks about this in, in in Field Command and in the other book, for reconciling, as he says, tactical ends with supporting science. Tactical science helps us explains why we took a certain course of action in a tactical operation and also provides us the insight that would not would not be available otherwise. I think it's very, very important that we see that because I I, I feel like. There's a movement where people don't really like tactical science because it's too esoteric. It's too difficult to understand. And look, the, one of the things that I've talked about before is I took tax science in 2011. And before that, I felt like there's something I'm missing. There's something here that I don't know. And then when I took tax science, I was, it was a an epiphany for me because I was like, this is where it's at. I get this. And it took me several years of study after tax science to get to understand this stuff. Now, one of the things when we talk about command versus control, and you kind of hit on this is, Sid, one of my favorite quotes from Field Command is, fortuitous circumstances are frequently mistaken for tactical acumen. In other words, we confuse good luck with good tactics. How many incidents have we all been to? And some of the listeners can can absolutely understand this is how many incidents have you been to where everything turned out great the tactics were horrible but it was just good luck right and everybody thinks okay we're good so that's something that that you should be aware of and that you should be on guard for
0: yeah and you're gonna you're gonna listen to that and you're gonna think that's not true that's not what happened and and we're not I agree with you, Travis. I think I worked for one of the luckiest agencies in the world. And we often would catch people, whatever, you know, catch a bad guy, survive the event, whatever it might be. But in the end, it was just a bad guy decided he wasn't going to try to outmaneuver us. He just surrendered or we just got lucky right and it, that's two things one you're going to say that's not always true because you're you know you're thinking we're being arrogant or have hubris but also it just might be that you don't understand the principles at play and once you learn to see the principles at play you can see how you won or lost and that's how you learn to get better so uh, uh, kind of like the nine principles of war right they're a it's a language and once you practice it you can see it. And as you see it, you can manipulate it or at best analyze it to find out what what took place. And so that's kind of the, the point of good luck, good tactics, in my opinion. Um, and, and I don't I would have never understood that if I hadn't have learned these concepts and they're not super hard. And a lot of people already apply them. Right. I mean, We, we apply them without knowing.
1: No, and that's and that's a good point. Is you're once you understand these things, you're like, yeah, I already know that. Well, now you have an actual body of knowledge where you can explain these principles, what's occurring to you, these phenomenons. And uh, one of the things with command versus control, and Adam, you can speak to this, is you can be in command. And not in control. And what I mean by that is, and something that Sid taught me, and I've talked about in other podcasts, is you absolutely have to align decision making authority with situational awareness. I can be at a command post that's separated from the incident, but I need to give control to the person that is, you know, the the, the crisis entry team leader, the canine. Sid gives examples of helicopter pilots. I'm not going to control a helicopter pilot expertise is domain specific. A helicopter pilot is not going to tell a doctor what to do and vice versa. So that's something to keep in mind when you're, if you're a commander at a command post is, and a lot of this has to do with trust. And and we kind of talked about this before the podcast is, you know, I'm in a smaller agency. I have 225 officers. I know most of those officers, but if I look at someone and I don't know them and I don't trust them, and a lot of this has to do with relationships, I am going to have a very hard time giving them my trust because I don't, what decision are you going to make? I've never trained with you before. I don't know you. There's a lot to be said there for how this works in command and control. And when you see commanders who make decisions at a command post about people who are at the crisis site and are trying to control that, it's a trust issue. And I think that's that's probably a little bit more for larger agencies at the outset of an incident, but that's just that's just my opinion.
2: yeah, I think when you when you kind of look big picture, um the things that stick out to me in this chapter, biggest, is of all the decisions made during crisis situations, none has more impact on a successful resolution than the selection of a commander. It is this person who will set the tone and tempo for the actions better to follow. And in addition to that on the following page it talks about the moral courage required of a commander. The moral courage has a greater influence on the success of an operation than the physical courage required of his officers. And I think that's really important to understand, right? Because the person who's running the incident is going to make the determination if we're going to contain or negotiate, if we're going to make entry, if we're going to assault. Um, the commander makes those decisions on if we should even be there or if we need to walk away. Um, they're going to make the decisions on what the teams reporting to them are going to do. What's the negotiations team going to do? What's the entry team going to do? What's the gas team going to do? Right? What are the perimeter units supposed to do? And do they have the resources needed to carry out their functions? That requires uh, some big picture thought. Right? The entry team leader is looking at the problem very differently than the operator who's looking at it very differently from the commander. So having a commander who can see things on a scalable level, who can see it from you know the, the 30,000 foot view versus maybe the 1,000 foot view versus the operator who's number one on the stick looking through the reticle of their aim point needs to be able to kind of see things through those different lenses to make the best possible decision. And then to have the moral courage to say, you know what, We're going to walk away from this problem. This is not something we're going to take all the way, or we're going to stick this problem all the way through. There's a justification for us to be there. And and then to your point, to have the trust either implicitly or explicitly through the ranks so that people know this person is making the right decisions, has the right experience, has the right mindset to make the good calls. And we've seen this in after actions that span over the course of time. Right? Whether it's an active shooter after action, a riot after action, a hostage rescue after action, the role of the commander can never be overstated. It is just that important. And again, the important distinction that this chapter makes is that command is the absolute authority to direct people and compel their compliance. They have to follow the orders that you give them, whereas control is you're using your relationships. Right to kind of leverage people and to leverage these different teams. And the two are intertwined, but they're also different. One is the authority and the other is the influence. Right. And if you have both, you're kind of in in a really positive spot in a leadership position. But really, if you can be in control, but not have command of the incident. You don't have the positional authority to command people in that particular incident. So it's important to know where you fit in that equation.
0: Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point between command and control is you you can think you have the illusion of both because of your position. You can have informal leaders or a lot of teams have collateral uh, commanders. And again, commanders aren't the same as leaders. They're not the same as managers. Command is a, is a function. Uh, in law enforcement, we interchange those a lot. Uh, we say, you know, this person's the tactical commander. They're usually a lieutenant um, or you know, larger agencies roll, you know, have the rolling commanders, uh, you know, on call and they come out for specific incidents. But, but you have that authority, right? If your culture is that's the commander and that's great. But the majority of folks are small enough that their collateral assignments, say in, in the SWAT community, but it could, doesn't have to be SWAT. it Could be any incident where you're the commander, right? You can have informal leaders, the people that suffer. With the troops, the people that have demonstrated their competence in training. And so a side note to this is if you if you want to have both, and we all agree, I think you, you should have both, you, you have to demonstrate your competence uh, to the folks because they'll comply because of your rank, but they'll do extra. They'll look to succeed versus survive you because they know That you're competent and and you've demonstrated servant leadership and you've owned your mistakes and training to them, and you've showed up early, you've left late, you've demonstrated your benevolence for the troops that you care about them. There's no shortcutting that. That's just putting in the time.
2: And you know, and I think there's also an important aspect of this that we haven't touched on yet. And it doesn't matter the size of your agency, but what about your relationships with your neighboring agencies? Because if you're a smaller agency and let's say you're 40 people and you're going to constantly be relying on neighboring agencies to come and cover you if you have like a barricade situation or if you have a hostage rescue problem or if you have a mobile field force problem, you're not gonna handle that on your own. Even mid-sized agencies, even large agencies are gonna have these issues. And I remember we had a situation we had two mobile field force platoons and the city was largely on fire. And you see the two commanders from two different agencies. They had known each other for some period of time. And the exchange looked something like, dude, it's really good to see you. It's good to see you too. And you know, everything is going to be all right because neither one has authority over the other. They have authority over their own people. They have You know, um, command over their own people, maybe not of the entire incident because they're platoon commanders or company commanders, not incident commanders. Um, But again, that previously existing relationship, even between commanders from different agencies, goes a long way in trust and making sure that if somebody's making a judgment call, there's faith that that person is making the right call, that they see something that maybe we don't. And so I think one of the things that we, and we were talking about before the podcast is. It's important to understand the concepts of command and control, how they work through an incident, and where we as sergeants, lieutenants, even officers, maybe a corporal, an officer in charge, where we fit into that. But I think one of the things that gets glossed over in this is the importance of the relationships, because there's going to be a before, during, and after the event. There's going to be a tomorrow, and how we conduct ourselves as commanders throughout one event is going to impact our credibility and our ability to command and control and lead after this event is over into the next event and the event after that. And so we can be directive and authoritarian in our approach. We have that ability as commanders, but it may not be the best approach to maintain those relationships and to get stuff done moving forward, right? Creating resentment, creating contempt. We want to avoid that. And so while we may need to be directive. As you know, in order to save someone's life or to lock down a scene or something like that, there's ways to do it artfully that don't compromise the relationships that you are building and maintaining throughout the process.
1: So, one of the things that uh, I attended a debrief on the fireside of Highland Park. Can you talk about Highland
2: Park for people who haven't been familiar with that incident?
1: Yeah. So, Highland Park was the uh, parade where the suspect was on a roof and opened fire on the parade. And, uh, struck multiple people, uh, in Illinois. One of the things that they talked about, and, and this was from the fire aspect was they had done training with PD before it was not the quality of the training that mattered. What it, what really made the pivot point for them was the relationships, right? If, if I'm showing up and, and I know Adam, you and I are going to do whatever we need to do to make this problem go right. Because we all know it's it's like Rescue Task Force. I've always told people, look, Rescue Task Force is not going to be as, as linear as you think it is. It's going to be a combination of several different things to do whatever we need to do to get these poor people help. It was the same thing in Highland Park. They did what they had to do to get that problem solved. And it's those relationships on the front end right i know the battalion chiefs from my agency i need to know them i need to have relationships with them so that if they're showing up in an active shooter we can get into a unified command very quickly and start to solve the problem um but back to our discussion of 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 our book is one of the things that 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 is a problem in our profession is that we will be called upon to run very large, complex operations, but even smaller operations can be a challenge for sergeants and lieutenants who have little experience. And look, I can name several different active shooter incidents right now where commanders with little or no experience are, are thrust into these things. And so, I don't know what the answer is to that, um, other than to legislatively mandate that we're trained to do these things. To to run these incidents because we all know cops will not do anything unless they're forced to. See, I would, I would push back on that because you know, you've got a bunch of people
2: listening to this podcast right now who are taking the initiative. Right. And I, and that it's such an important point that cops is a profession, right? Well, I'm not going to do anything that the department doesn't provide. Right. But I think it's really up to the disciples of this kind of tax science and what we're talking about to push it out to their people even at lineups or uh, you know when you're doing in the report room you know showing these after actions because i think one of the things you brought up is so important is small agency or large agency when we talk about these after actions and we see the leadership failings or shortcomings fortunately most of us are not going to have a number of reps commanding an active shooter you know you look at a novel problem like north hollywood or stockton right those are novel problems where we're not going to get reps at that, but we can get the after actions. We can get conversations with people who were there. We can get a video off of YouTube or Vimeo and and kind of reconstruct what happened and have talks with those people um, that we work with and say, hey, listen, let's talk about a really novel event. And God forbid it ever happens here. This is what worked over here, and here's what didn't work. So at least we have a frame of reference, you know. And I think that's one of those things that we don't do enough of because there's so many things competing for our attention whether it's emotional intelligence or cultural competencies or everything else which is all important these critical incidents they are actual life and death incidents right where people do lose life and limb and it is our responsibility not only to ourselves and our community but also to our peers who they don't know that cato exists they don't know books like sound doctrine and field command exist they don't know that these after actions are open source for anyone to see introducing that to people you'll blow their mind and maybe they take away a nugget here or there that better prepares them you know one of the things that i've seen done more recently is for active shooter events right the command and control aspect taking a the radio footage from something like parkland right uh, the stoneham douglas active shooter taking the radio traffic and seeing Where were the commanders, the sergeants, lieutenants, and captains? Looking at San Bernardino, a guy like Mike Madden, who's a a lieutenant working in the city of San Bernardino, when that terrorist attack cracks off and the direction he's giving on the radio and maybe taking the two, juxtaposing them, putting them side by side. Where is the leadership here? Where is the leadership here? What worked here? What maybe didn't work over there? That's maybe 20 minutes. That's 30 minutes of conversation between sergeants, lieutenants, officers, deputies. And maybe that breaks something loose if they're standing back instead of moving in, right? Where they're, instead of organizing rescue, we're organizing traffic control, right? And and I think because there's so many things competing for our attention from a command and control, command starts before the incident. It starts in training. And the training doesn't have to be a formalized, okay, guys, let's get into a stick and make entry. It may just be something as simple as a tabletop so that people know what the red flags are and what the warning signs might be so that they can take better actions.
1: Yeah. And so you bring up a good, you know, a lot of good points. And one of the things from sound doctrine is we, who do we promote? I mean, we promote people who have gained, as Sid says respect and acclaim as an administrator with little tactical experience. And then these people of rank are now criticizing and critiquing an operation that we're involved in, and one of the things I love that I really picked up from Sid is, with hindsight, even an imbecile can be an expert, right?
0: Yeah, Anybody, what a great
1: quote! What a uh, great quote! And, and 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 I, you know, I know Sid used that with a reporter at one point, which is just awesome. But we have incident commanders out there, and look, I, I look at it like this: we have in California, the incident commander has the final say. I, as a tactical commander, need to pass my what I'm going to plan on doing through the incident commander. There's also something I'll call the Phoenix model where the tactical commander is in charge of the tactics. I'm not gonna pass anything through you as as the tactical commander. The incident commander does not have the final say. But what happens is we have timid tactical commanders who will not seek the initiative. Remember, the initiative is the freedom of action. It is our job as tactical commanders to impose our will on our adversary. Our goal is to gain and maintain the initiative, which means something sometimes we have to go on the offensive, which is one of the nine principles of war, which is in in the book or nine principles of tactical operations, whatever you want to call it. If you look at the offense, if you have a defensive attitude where any and, and it all of us have been in an operation where we've sat out there for hours on end and done nothing. The best that you're going to get with a defense is a stalemate. You're not going to go anywhere. And it's, so at some point, and, and my rule of thumb is, as soon as I get a search warrant as a tactical commander, if I get that, as soon as I get the search warrant, and we've been pa this guy for hours, we're done. We're going on the offensive. We are going to bring the fight to this person. Now, I can defend that course of action Because I understand tactical science. I am not a timid tactical commander. I understand initiative. I understand maneuvering in time. I understand all of those science and principles that allow me to explain not only to the incident commander about what I'm going to do, but to my chief of police, to a criminal jury, to a civil jury. That is why this body of knowledge is so important for all of us that are involved in these tactical operations.
2: Well, and I think you bring up a couple of really good points. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite authors is uh, Jim Mattis, right? Retired Secretary of Defense and four-star general. And I I think there's a couple of things that I want to touch on with what you just said. When time is on our side for some of these events, we can work things by the numbers and still maintain the initiative, right? We can work things at a pace that we set without being reckless or careless or taking shortcuts. That's not what this is about. It's about what what Mattis calls like a bias towards action as opposed to sitting there kind of wringing our, our hands over what we're doing or what we're doing next. We're actually setting out what well, we know what the plan is. We know why we're doing these things and we're going to move forward at a, at a pace that we set without allowing our adversary to gain any sort of advantage or initiative. This bias towards action is important, right? Because if you're the commander, everything is queuing off of you. You're the one who's making the decision on if we're going to begin negotiations or not. You're the one who's deciding whether or not we're going to deploy certain resources or tactics or not. If we're going to try and shift the terrain in our favor or not, Um, identifying opportunities in time or not. That really is based on the commander's expertise. And then as far as the decision-making process, this is another Mattis quote that I love is that decisions occur at the speed of trust at the speed of trust, right? Between commanders, between commanders and subordinates, between commanders and their higher authorities, like a lieutenant and say a captain or a captain and a chief. And that trust is gained through training and expertise. It's gained through decision-making exercises and it's gained through your body of work, right? Your repertoire of what you have done before successfully using sound tactics and, and sound judgment or maybe just getting by on the skin of your teeth through good luck. And every time we make a decision or every time we operate in a command setting, we are either making deposits into that bank of trust with our our subordinates, with our peers and with our superior officers, or making withdrawals. And what we want to do is make more deposits than we do withdrawals. And I think it's sometimes we forget that, you know, going out and attending training as a commander and watching your your tactical teams at work or your patrol teams at work, those are deposits. They see that you're out there, and you're able to get better situational awareness, a better sense of trust in your people, just as they're getting a better sense of trust in you. And that makes it easier for you to make decisions, and it makes it easier for people to trust in the decisions that you're making. When you have that back and forth, to use a big word, symbiotic relationship, right? You're helping them do their job you're helping, they're helping you do your job. And that trust isn't being built for the very first time at a critical incident.
1: No, and you bring up a good point. I mean, I've been on, uh, I've been involved in my tactical team for 16 years at multiple levels. And the, you know, my team leaders are guys that I've worked with for years and years on end, but a lot of these young guys I haven't worked with before. And so it's, it's for me, it's important that I get to training right? I'm not going to participate in training because I need to observe. What is your skill set? What is it that you're doing? What can I expect from you when the crisis hits our door? And I, I, I see this where, you know, we get lieutenants who want to come out and they want to participate in training and they want to be that guy. And there's, there's a certain element to that that is important, but it's very calculated. Yeah. You need to run the O course you need to call You need to make sure that these these guys and and women understand that you still have the capability. But how do I gain their trust? And how do they gain my trust? I have been involved in incidents where I've worked with this guy for 16 years. I know exactly what he is going to do right now. I don't even need to get on the radio. I don't even need to do anything because I know he is going to make the right decision. Is that as a tactical commander, as a lieutenant, very, very difficult? Of course it is. Having been there, you just lay your trust in them and just say, hey, let them take it.
0: If if you're not laying your trust in them, it's twofold, right? You've either selected the wrong person or kept the wrong person or you failed to train them or you've not spent enough time so that you're confident with them and you know, right? We're talking about reducing friction points prior to an emergency. You have to spend enough time with your troops so they have they understand your your roles are all well-defined, you've got enough reps in, that they know what you expect and what you think, and that you know where they're at and what they're capable of, especially if you have a bunch of new folks, right? Like we always kind of look like, well, these guys are all new, I gotta make sure they're okay. And you're not wrong, you need to do that. But at the same time, you also have to prove your worth to them. And that's how you set the tone, right? You said, hey, this is my role, this is why if I'm not taking up a spot, I'll shoot. This is why I'm, if I'm not detracting from what the team's trying to do, I'll, you know, I'll participate at my level doing something. But I'm also not going to take a rep away from someone who's doing entries because I'm going to be in a command post. I will never do an entry. If I have to go do an entry after 25 other people are there before me, we're start thinking about why we're there. Because that means a whole bunch of bad stuff happened, or it's a zombie apocalypse, right? So, so that's not the skill I should practice.
1: Well, Marcus, one of the things that that you should tell your operators that you should say, "Hey, look, this is why I'm sitting back and observing. This is why I'm not participating in training." Because a lot of these new, I mean, look, my team is very young right now. We just brought on three new guys just this week out of twenty-five, and I've got a lot of guys under five years, and. I think it's important that you get up in front of them because they'll be like, why isn't DLT doing any of this stuff? Why isn't this happening? Well, you need to at least give them some awareness because they probably have no clue and think that you should be doing all of these things when in reality, that's not your role anymore. You have to talk to them. You can't just assume that they know all of these things because they don't. They have no
2: idea. And this this is a big part of command and control that I think this chapter unfortunately glosses over, which is the communication that occurs between the commander and we'll call them the subordinate, right? Basically, the teams that are working for that commander. If you're the commander, you have the authority, you have positional authority to basically compel people to do what you're directing them to do. Go take that post, go make entry on that problem, What, whatever the case may be. But again... I subscribe to the belief that operations and decisions occur at the speed of trust. And if you're an officer, you don't see things through the lens of a sergeant or a lieutenant. How could you? You're not a sergeant, you're not a lieutenant. So, being able to sit down and say, when I'm attending trainings, this is what I'm looking at. I'm looking for gaps in our training. Where are we exceeding? Where are we meeting standards? And where are we falling short? So that if I need to use you as an instrument to accomplish a mission, what are your capabilities? Are you capable of executing on, you know, whatever mission might be or might call for? Are you capable of doing that? And if not, how do we get you to that level? That is my job. There's still the standards that I need to maintain, my firearms, my fitness, whatever. But my job is to be the decision maker, to command the incident, right? And you get back to the basics of you can only do one thing well at a time. And you take it, for example, we'll use Pulse in Orlando. Um, Pulse nightclub. So you have Lieutenant Scott Smith. He's the watch commander. He's also the SWAT commander, and he makes entry on the problem. Now I'm not saying that was the right decision or the wrong decision, but he makes entry into the problem and he ends up sending rounds downrange. What is his perspective when he does that? It's the reticle on his aim point as he's trying to get the suspect into his sights. His view is that of an operator, not of a commander. He may be in command. He may have the authority to do that as the watch commander for the city, but he is not taking on that command role, right? So it's important for people to understand the different layers and levels to these incidents. You can only do one thing well at a time, and if you're a commander, the one thing you should be doing well at that time is command, right? You shouldn't be operating unless the situation is exigent. You take, for example, Mike Madden first on scene to the um, San Bernardino active shooter incident. You're there. You've got to do what you've got to do. Now, if you're 12th, 13th, 14th, chances are it probably calls for you to take command of the incident, right? You can only do one thing well at a time, and that is command. So that's where you should be getting your reps in. It should be in command, making decisions, even in training and letting your officers see you in a command perspective, see you in a command role. They're like, this person's decisive they know what they're doing. And then afterwards, you can explain to them in a trainings environment or after the event is resolved, a real world event, this is why I made the decisions that I made. And there's a unique opportunity if you've screwed something up to say, you know what, I kind of screwed that up. I'm taking ownership of that. Here's what I should have done. Here's what my thought process was to give them a little bit of an insight into the, the mind of a commander, to way, the way you're working through these problems mentally because you're working through them differently than somebody who's an operator, one, two, or three in the stick, a sniper you know, in an overwatch position, you know, somebody who's part of the gas team. They're seeing the problem very differently from you.
0: Yeah, agreed. And that's all, like you said, defining roles, get the reps. This was a pretty short chapter. It had a lot of meat in it, like everything else in Sound Doctrine. Know the difference between command and control. Know how you can get both, right? Know that you have to build and demonstrate your competence. And if you don't have that, don't hide from it because you're not, you're only fooling yourself. Everybody else knows. If you don't know and you don't feel comfortable or you don't know what this looks like, there's lots of resources out there where you can learn. And that's what really started all three of us on our, on our journey to figure it out. Right. That's what led all three of us to appreciate sound doctrine, feel command and, and the science behind tactics and and uh, honestly it was embarrassing that i didn't know it beforehand i didn't i knew how to do some things but i didn't know you know the why so we covered you know command control we covered what command is its function and definition that it does require authority you have to have the authority we briefly touched on selection and in law enforcement the selection of command. Uh, is not based on necessarily knowledge and experience, but more on rank. And we need to balance that out. And we've seen, you know, over the last 10 years, even smaller agencies add critical incident management to their testing process for uh, a minimum uh, at the lieutenant level. Again, it's up to each agency what they want to do. And it's up to how much they ask those uh, lieutenants or commanders to train. And as you go higher in the ranks, the more removed you are from operational activities, it's harder to break free from those meetings and other obligations. So, how do you do that, right? How do you take the time to learn and develop your craft and build uh, on that competence? And then uh, you briefly talked about situational awareness. And uh, Kevin Seer uh, was on a previous podcast, had a great talk on that, and I think we all agree. If our training was equal, so Adam, and I show up, we have the same minimum standards in our training, but one of us has greater situational awareness Then they should be in charge because they know. And yet in law enforcement, it goes by rank. So the next highest person comes, now they're in charge. I got to rebrief them and get them up to speed. Consider that. Consider how you can handle that challenge. And uh, if it's you and you're showing up and you're not feeling comfortable or competent in what things look like. What can you do to go back and fix that before you do have one of these incidents that um, you handle poorly and uh, brings, you know, instead of a ticker tape at the bottom of the screen that your agency involved in this incident, it becomes a full blown
2: national deal.
0: Uh, Adam, anything else to add to
2: that? I, I would just say it's it's up to the individual, right? Everybody who's listening is taking the initiative to actually listen to a, a Cato podcast, which means you probably attend some of. The Cato trainings, which means you've probably seen sound doctrine or field command or associated texts. And if that's if that's you, right, it's also on you to try and push that out to other people in our profession. That's the only way this information gets out is people who are passionate about the work. And this is this is life and death stuff, right? This is the stuff where people lose their lives and, and limbs. This is you know career ending stuff. If we do it wrong, it can be incredibly detrimental to an organization or oftentimes when we have success, it's our finest hour. It's what people point to and say, this is why we're proud of our law enforcement professionals. And it doesn't, sometimes it happens by accident, right? But a lot of the times it's because people are making good decisions based on good training, education, experience, integration of tactical science. So it's really incumbent upon all of us to make sure that people in our profession get this information because it makes us all better.
0: Yeah, and if you... You take on a leadership position; it's your responsibility. You don't, you don't get that option anymore. And uh, like it says, I think Travis quoted earlier: the higher in rank you go, the more likely you're going to be called upon to respond to one of these events and take a leadership role. And you know, there's kind of three kinds of folks out there, right? This will never happen to me, or it'll never happen here, or when we get here. Uh, I'm ready for this challenge, and uh, I'm hoping that this is my finest moment, not my worst moment. So, uh, Trav and Adam, thanks for being on the show. I know uh, Sound Doctrine is near and dear to many of us, and so we're going to try to keep these going with a variety of guests so that we can uh, keep talking about uh, the book. Um, But again, nothing we do uh, is going to be as good as the book itself. We just hope this uh, helps kind of complement your reading, be a student of your profession. And as always, if you like what we're doing, uh, please share it with somebody and uh, feel free to send us an email or a comment on the platform of your choice. Thanks again, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at katotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.